Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. You're very welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, from Graham Dwyer to Jerry the Monk Hutch, we'll hear how technology has played a key role in some of Ireland's most prominent criminal trials. Derek Riley has the rundown on the new Mini Coopers and an awful looking BMW design concept. Plus, I'll give you a chance to win a 55-inch N19 TV from Telefunken. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. But we're going to start this week with one of the co-hosts of one of my favourite podcasts. I mentioned it on The Hard Shoulder on Thursday, but it's called Shattered Lives and it's hosted by Michael O'Toole and Paul Healy of The Star. I've been listening to it from the very beginning. And one thing that has really struck me is just how much technology features in the different crimes discussed, be that CCTV, cell site analysis or bugging devices. Michael O'Toole is the crime and defence editor of the Irish Daily Mirror and The Star and he joins me now. Uh, Mick, I'm delighted to have you on. Thanks so much for your time. You've obviously been writing about crime for quite a while. Um, Is talking about crime on the podcast different? Like, does a different switch go off in your brain when you're chatting about it versus sitting down and writing about it? And is it possible to say which of the two you prefer more? I, I, I really like doing the pod, Jess, I have to say. it's it. I, I would tell people this. It is sort of, I think it has reinvigorated my career as a journalist. So I I'm, I think I'm what they call a veteran journalist now. So I'm, I'll be 30 years at this in uh, in October. And that's a long time to be on the front line for any reporting gig. And it does really take it out of you. And sometimes you can get very jaded. So what I like about the pod, as I said, it has reinvigorated me and it's great to be able to contextualize things and talk about things. So say if you and I are doing a story, you know, we, we might have to do five stories in a day. You do one hit, you go to another, you go to another and you go to another. And it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I always said this, that when I write a story before I saw I'm part of Reach now, which is the mirror. So my stories go up online, which is an added bonus before that in the star, we didn't really have a web presence. So the stories basically went in the paper and stayed on my computer. So Reach came along and bought it. So my stories now go online. But before that, it was just, it's very, very binary. You wrote the story and it stayed in your computer. And I didn't have really many opportunities to contextualize and talk about things. So that's what I like about the pod. You know, Paul and I bounce off each other. And because I've been in the game more, I have lots of stories and lots of, you know, examples and, you know, sort of anecdotes which sort of, I think, enliven the process and really show what it's like to be a, a crime reporter. And because, like, you know, we were talking off air about one case you mentioned there about Graham Dwyer and about cell site analysis and telephone analysis. I remember the first, I can talk for hours about the first time cell site analysis was used in any Garda case, and that was 1999. I remember actually reading the story in the Sunday Times, a fantastic uh, fantastic journalist called Mia Sheehan broke the first story about cell site analysis, and it was in relation to the Oma bomb. So I can talk about that in the pod, because and you don't really get a chance to do it when you're doing a story in the Star of the Mirror, because you have to stick to sort of straight up reporting, whereas the pod lets you talk about crime and contextualise it and have a few anecdotes. Yeah, and that's something that uh, it's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on because you have been doing this for such a long time. Obviously, technology has really infiltrated every walk of life and crime is no different. And there are so many different examples of cases that I'd be aware of where cell site analysis was used, where CCTV was used, where, you know, encrypted messages or encrypted phones were decrypted and were vital in different cases around the world. Have you noticed that as a, a key trend or are the themes of crime still the same and now tech is just a different tool for both the guards and the criminals? I have definitely noticed it and I'll just give you a, an everyday example. Um, a couple of years ago, so I, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've obviously have some, some subscribed to the Garda Press Office email list, so all the press releases, I don't know if you get them, but I know obviously in News Talk you get them. If you look back, I think it was about maybe three years ago, every witness appeal would have you know, before that, it was, you know, we're looking for any witnesses to come forward. Now, every witness appeal includes a call for any drivers who were passing and had dash cam footage. Mm. So that shows you how the guards are tuned in. I have a dash cam in my car. I, I've recorded very various things, you know. Um, so 
that is not, it shows you how sort of fluid and flexible the guards are. They see this, that lots of more and more people are having dash cams. And I'd say the more we get into, say, self-drive cars and all that sort of stuff, it'd be really, really vital, all the cameras in cars. So the guards now ask for anybody with dash cam to come forward. And that, I think that shows you how technology is impacting in every single aspect of any guard investigation. Yeah, um, I'm sure everybody was hooked to it, but I know I was. Uh, your podcast during the trial of uh, the monk, Jerry the Monk Hutch, um, it was fascinating on about 17 different levels, but I was very interested in the uh, recording that was captured of um, Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall in the car, how that was uh, captured, how it was presented in the court, and the value that it added to, um, I suppose, both sides, both sides had something to say about it. From a journalistic point of view, is that something that happens often where, you know, a piece of evidence is brought in that was captured in secret and then presented to the court? No, and I, I as you said, Paul Haley did most of the, the, the court case. He did a fantastic job, but I was in, Paul was away, so I was in for the recordings. They were played twice and, and it was over, I think, three days. And the first time I was there for that. So it was really, really interesting hearing it. There have been, that is one of the first times that, uh, I think it's the first time that a recording has been played like that. Now, there have been a couple of other trials in relation to the Kinnan cartel, uh, efforts to kill other members of the Hutch family. And there were recordings, but if memory serves me right, the transcripts were read not to actual recordings themselves being played. Now, I won't be the correction from that, but I'd be 99% sure that that was the first time recordings were played like that. So that was an interesting departure by the Garda Shikana. And what's really interesting, I know this, I wrote a book in 2000 called Black Operations, The Secret War Against the Real IRN. That was about Uduma Bomb. And the, the National Surveillance Unit, which was heavily mentioned in the Hutch trial, broke into several powers controlled by the real IRA that they were going to use as bombs, as car bombs, and they fitted trackers and they fitted bugging machines, bugging devices. But that evidence was never played in court. So up until recently, Guardi used buggings and trackings as intelligence rather than evidence. So in other words, you would see in a, in a, a Guardi given evidence in a trial about, we've got confidential information, and they wouldn't say that they had recordings or tracking devices or whatever now they've sort of come out into the open and they've openly said yes we have tracking and we have uh, bugging devices on this but i do think i think it is fair to say that the nsu or the national surveillance unit i don't think they were overly comfortable with aspects of their trade craft coming through like for example nobody really knows how the nsu got uh, into Donald's car the bugger and that was never said, and that's tradecraft, so they're very, very sensitive about this. But there is, you know, that's the first time in my memory that uh, the evidence, the oral oral evidence from a bug was played in court. I don't know if it'll happen again necessarily. That was a big case. Yeah, but I, I do think it's interesting to see that those techniques are now or have been deployed. And as you said, it may not become the norm, but it is an interesting departure because, you know, we we see stories all the time of, you know, individuals using air tags to track their kids so they can see where they are and all that sort of stuff. So this technology exists. And from a policing point of view, sometimes being, you know, a good uh, armchair detective myself, I'm like, well, why don't they just use the bloody data that's out there? Because we know it's out there. And one thing that I really appreciated with yourself and Paul's conversations and the the dialogue around all of this in in your podcast was it's not black and white. There's issues around, you know, data retention, data collation, GDPR. Like there's a whole host of, I suppose, regulatory and legal issues that the guards would have to comply with. It's not as easy as just sticking an air tag in the back seat and then off you go. No, and you have to go to for the case of tracking, you have to go. Uh, you, you, it can uh, it can be authorized by a senior mm. officer, but then for a bugging device, which is separate to a tracking device, a judge has to say yes or no, and there has to be hearings for that to present. So, guard the, the the courts are very zealous in protecting protecting people's rights, and even say in relation to you and me, um, the the Supreme Court recently ruled that the guards seized uh, computers. And a phone of a journalist called Emmett Corcoran, who is in Longford. You may remember the Strokestown incident when these people attacked a house that had been seized uh, or repossessed, and it was a very, very valid attack. Emmett Corcoran came on that scene shortly afterwards, and the guards wanted, the guards believed he had evidence 
about sources on his phones and they seized it. And he obviously refused to hand over his pen. And it went to court and the Supreme Court ruled in his favour and therefore in our favour that there has to be a test before which Gardaí can access can get our phones or can access our phones. And even we, we did speak about Graham Dwyer. Dwyer brought a challenge to the Garda retention of data. If it was for two up until 2018 when he won his case, guards could access anybody's data over a two year period. The detective chief superintendent in a group called Security and Intelligence, used to be called Crime and Security, just had to sign a form, went to the providers and they handed over all your billing. So every call, every text that you have made and received was given to the guards. Now that can't happen. There have to be, there have been, there, you know, that was that was called into question by Dwyer. Now the justice minister had to sign another order, but it just goes to show you that there are checks and balances. And even journalism was specifically mentioned. There was a, 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 a sort of commission into it and they did express reservations about Guardi getting journalist data. So there is European law and there is Irish law to protect journalists, basically. Yeah, and obviously, you know, with the um, rise to prominence of social media and so on, how has that changed or has it changed how different sources get in touch with you and whether it is giving you tips or giving you the heads up on something? Like, does that happen quite a bit on social media? Uh, I'm very, I, yeah, I'm very, I'm, I'm extremely reluctant to talk about sources. I know you're not asking me about sources, no. but I'm extremely reluctant to talk about source development because you and I as journalists and be to me uh, chatting the breeze, but this is somebody's career and livelihood. But what I can say is um, social media for, for me specifically has been a massive boon for source recruitment. Now I'm not going to say how I recruit these mm. sources or, or who they are, but um, I, and, and I'm saying this openly because it's it's on my Twitter handle, I'm on Mick the Hack on Twitter, and you can see my pinned tweet that there are ways of getting in contact with me. One, you know, there are lots of apps. One is Threema. Now that's very good because it's anonymous. So I don't know who they are. Now that raises ethical questions for, for journalists. Can we trust people who are anonymous? I can personally. I, I, my interest in who they are, I don't really care who they are. My interest in is what they're telling me is it verifiable and is it true? I know some journalists will go, oh, I don't talk to anonymous people. If people want to protect themselves by talking to me anonymously, I have no problem with that. People can contact me in various ways. On my pinned tweet, I talk about Threema. I talk about people can DM me for my signal number. They can message me on, on, on Snapchat, which is mad because I spent ages trying to find the safest app for talking to somebody. It turns out it's an app that my teenage kids use. Because <laughs> the messages delete and they're not stored and there's no you know metadata and all that sort of stuff. So there are plenty of ways that sources get can get in contact with me, and I I encourage them to talk to me in any way in which they feel most secure themselves. But I do say this, and there's plenty. I, I have put up the stories beside it. I've been in court. I've been. I I think it's about twenty six, twenty seven times that Gardy came to my office. And asked me who, who my sources were. I, I've appeared in tribunals. I've appeared in high court cases. And it's very lonely when you're on a stand and you say you have to protect your sources because you don't know how the judge is going to react. Mm. Thankfully, in the, in the times when I've done that, the judge has accepted my uh, my need to protect my sources. So it has, you know, it has. But he could have said, he or she could have said, no, Michael, tell me who told you or else you're going to the jail. So it's, it's a very lonely position. But look, just to get back to your point, uh, social media is a massive boon for source retention and source protection. And there are several apps that you can use to talk to them. But I think one thing that's very important for any reporter is you have to keep up to date. There was one, do you remember, I don't know if you remember this, was it an app called Disclose? Do you remember it was an orange one? I don't know if you ever come no. across that one. That was, it was used by the Americans and they were all talking to each other and I made inquiries and it's not, a, it wasn't as safe as I had been hoping, so I quickly dumped that. So you have to be like, you know, you have to be flexible and you have to keep checking. Like every couple of weeks, I will do a search and go, is Threema safe? Is Signal safe? What is the most secure app for journalists? So in other words, you can't just sit there and go, right, I've got Threema and that's me. You have to keep going and you have to keep checking their validity and their security. Yeah, and that uh, the protection of the sources thing is super important, obviously enough. But aside from us using it as a tool for our jobs and our journalism, obviously criminals are using different encrypted platforms and the ways they communicate, 
you know, it's no longer one Nokia 3310 calling another Nokia 3310, one Vodafone customer calling another Vodafone customer or whatever network it is. The levels of sophistication have increased and things like disappearing messages and encrypted devices, I'm sure, is an absolute pain in the face for investigators in whatever jurisdiction when they are trying to, I suppose, go that last, the, the final mile in an investigation. Yes. So there are, I use encrypted messages. Um, I, I presume you do as well, Jess. Yeah, and so they're good for, I would consider myself a good guy, but the bad guys use them as well. And they do talk to each other. There was... You'll know about, and your listeners will know about EncroChat. So that was an, an encrypted phone system. That was busted, I think, around 2018. But there's been a couple of ones. There was another one that had Sky something that was busted by Europol and the French police and the Belgian police, I think. And they were literally phones that had their own network. So you could talk to each other and the messages would disappear and everything. I actually think the days of things like EncroChat are over. I think... We're going to go back to the days of criminals using con- phone boxes to talk to each other because EncroChat, it was breached and it's led to massive operations all over the world. In England, there's a thing called Operation Benedict, the National Crime Agency. We're given all this data of all the messages relevant to Britain. And I think hundreds of people have been charged. There have been millions of pounds worth of drugs seized, loads of weapons and cash. There haven't been one in Ireland yet. And my belief is, and the, the guards have been criticised for this, I think it's slightly naive. My belief is, as I said earlier, about the difference between intelligence and evidence. So the NCA in England are using all the EncroChat data as evidence in court cases. My own view is that the guards, because there were there were parcels of data given to every police force in the world, right? I think the guards are using this as intelligence rather than evidence. And I think I know why. Ireland has a written constitution. You mentioned the, the, the Hutch trial. Jerry Hutch's defence tried to have elements of the, the bogged conversation ruled uh, ruled inadmissible because it happened up north. Now, the judge said it was illegal, but let it in, but she disregarded the evidence in the end. So I think the guards are painfully aware. I mentioned Graham Dwyer, Mountain Legal Challenges. Uh, Ireland, and I think it's one of our greatest assets, our legal system is on the side of the accused, in my opinion. So that means that you and I, if ever we're charged with anything, we can challenge every aspect of the, the, the state's case. So the guards were aware of this. And this is my theory. It's a strong theory. It's a very educated guess. So I think the guards aren't using it as evidence because they know it will be challenged. And if they lose one case, that's everything out the window. So they're using it as, as an intelligence instead. And I think it's been very successful. But is that not then discounting the possibility of having some dynamite evidence that you're not bringing to the table? Yes. So I think what they have to do is that they have to assess each one. Now, what would be really interesting, we know uh, Drew Harris said this a few weeks ago, that the guards have sent files on Daniel Christopher and Christy Kenning to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Now, that the guards have asked the DPP to charge the proffer charges of directing a crime gang to these three men. Now, that carries life in prison. Now, so I would not be surprised if they have evidence phone data, bugged, you know, EncroChat stuff, all that sort of stuff. And I think the Kenyans are such a big catch that the guards would risk it and they would go for the legal challenges and all that sort of stuff. So don't be surprised if they decide to move away from intelligence for middle and low fish to bring in direct evidence for big fish like the Kenyans. You have to make a, they have to make a, a risk assessment and go, right, if we lose this, it sets us back. Is it worth it? It's worth the risk to get the Kenyans behind bars. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Yeah. Um, and obviously, as you alluded to there, they are the big fish. But if we look at some of the smaller fish, I know you guys were recently talking about uh, some of the stuff that's been going on in Dublin City Centre and the safety of Dublin City Centre and so on. Just with your experienced crime hat on, what would be your take of what's going on? Is it just that people feel a bit feral after the pandemic and now they're acting the Egypt? Is it people being influenced by social media and just going out and trying to cause a bit of crack? Or is it just usual bad behaviour? I think it's everything. I, I Some guards and some politicians I, I, I've spoken to think that there is a serious issue about, let's call them the pandemic generation. Mm. Kids who were maybe 13, 14, 15, when the pandemic hit and they were at a very impressionable and very vulnerable age. And suddenly all their external supports were stopped. 
So youth clubs, GAA games, you know, everything stopped. And some guards would think that had a, that had a devastating effect on that cohort. Look, this was the whole thing. You know, I always say this. Some days I could be, I'm just going to pick a town. I could be in Limerick three days, three times in a month over three separate murders or three major incidents. But the next time I could go to Limerick could be in two years. So there might not be a murder in Limerick or Galway or whatever for another two years. And sometimes things just happen. So I, there is a, I was talking to an academic and he said that this is a scientific thing or there is a theory that there are random events that just happen in one area, you know, that sort of thing. So look, you know, we had the attack on Stephen Termini, the American tourist. We had the attack on a couple of English tourists. We had another English tourist. I did a story on being assaulted, knocked out by a woman who stole his phone and his necklace. All happened concentrated within three weeks. We could go another five or six weeks before, without another tourist being attacked. So look, it just it's like that whole thing about events, dear boy events. Things just happen together at the same time and who knows why. So is it a crisis I, I I walk around Dublin. I don't know you about you, Jess. I walk around Dublin. I've done for three decades. I've never felt unsafe. Walk I, my offices in Talbot Street, right opposite where Mr. Termini was attacked. I walk down North Earl Street. I walk around the Spire at night after having a few jars, you know, before lockdown, whatever. I, nothing's ever happened to me, but that's not me minimizing what happens because I know other people can feel lucky. But I did speak to a business owner in South who has built businesses north and south of the Liffey in the city centre, Smithfield and around Stevens Green. And he talks about low level crime is rampant. They don't, they end up not reporting most of it. It's just everywhere. And he is decrying the lack of guard of visibility. Mm. Yeah. And look, I, I do think there's, there's so many different elements to this. Guard of visibility is one thing. And then I also think, what is the barometer of antisocial behaviour or, you know, borderline criminality or whatever it is? You see people acting the Egypt all the time and it can be a pain in the face, but that's the height of it. But it's when it goes beyond that. And when you are walking around town feeling unsafe or when you do see something and you don't know what to do, that's where the big problem arises. Um, I can't let you go without asking you about your novel. I have to talk to you about it. I need to talk to you about it. Uh, it's called Black uh, Blacklight. And I want to know, just from going going from writing copy for papers and online to writing a novel, how was that gear shift in your brain? It was horrendous. It was horrendous. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to look. It's like every... It's like every there's I mean, there's this famous joke about two people at a party and one says to the other, yeah, 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 I'm writing a novel. And the other one says, yeah, neither am I. So <laughs> I think every journal, every journalist thinks they're a writer. Right. Yeah. I'm a hack. I, I consider myself a hack. But I always wanted to be okay, it's like all of us. We always wanted to be a writer. So I try. I started. I actually I remember when I started. It was after the Graham Dwyer trial in April 2015. Mm. So I started working on it probably around. October 2015 and I got it done 120,000 words and I, I got maybe I got it done about 2017 and I thought happy days I am the next John Connolly no problem right mm -hmm. and I sent it off to a couple of agents and they came back and said it's shite or it's crap <laughs> so that was that so not but, but you know it was the best thing that happened because they said you know nothing about characterization your dialogue is terrible and essentially what they said was you're writing this as a journalist who would write uh -huh. a 500 word story and it's completely different like for example right say if i'm doing a story about daniel kenyon as a journalist i would say mob boss daniel kenyon 46 if i'm writing a, a story about someone like daniel kenyon you have to describe how, what they look like you have to describe you know their mannerisms you have to give them a character and i had none of that in my book so i went back and i deconstructed the book i read books on how to write and i looked followed as much advice as I could find about how to write and then I rebuilt it again and you know what it's it's actually out a year next week and I'm extremely proud of it and yeah. um, it hasn't made me a millionaire but uh, the most important thing for me is uh, it's it's a police procedural so it's obviously about I don't know if you've read it but it's about have, yeah. a bit of journalism in it okay yeah. right so don't give did you did you spot the ending I'm telling you, I'm not giving any spoilers away because we're going to start a book club here on the show, right? We're going to start a book club on the show and this is going to be one of my picks. So everyone's going to, we're going to have the big discussion about it then. We might get you back in to do like the author's thoughts. No, the, the reason why I'm asking is, and, and now uh, very, very, very capable detectives who mm. have so, done some of the biggest cases in Ireland 
didn't get the bad guy in this, right? Every woman who has read it said to me, I know who that I know who the bad guy is. Yeah. So there's something women just have this intuition. I'm talking like nine out of ten women who have spoken to me, but I said, Yeah, there was just something about a certain person, right? But all these detectives were gorgeous. But anyway, so the best uh, compliment I got, there's a bit of journalism, as you can see, and that's all real. I There was a scene where, you may remember this, there was a scene where a journalist has asked for his sources. That has happened to me 50 times. Mm-hmm. And it happened to me last week, and it was exactly the same. We brought them in, cup of tea, no comment, no comment, no comment. But the best uh, compliment I got from it was, loads of guards have read it. It was written for guards because I wanted guards to respect the book. Mm-hmm. And a couple of guards, one guard said to me, Michael, you know far too much about our job. <laughs> so that was a great compliment for me so look it took me really it took me it was five years to finish it but really it took me it was so bad I had to learn how to write as a, a writer without sounding terribly pretentious and I had to learn how to build arcs of characterization and all that sort of stuff it's very interesting and it's it's a nice diversion from what I normally do and it's 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 actually quite enjoyable when you have so much time to write and so much work so many words to do something like that yeah, I I need to know what did you write it on? What's your device of choice? Um, I wrote it. I got. I'm look. I'm talking to you now on my MacBook Pro. Ah, oh, good man. Yeah. So I did it in that. Um, I think I actually did. I start right. I used to have an iPad, and I think I started right. No, no MacBook Pro. So MacBook. I, this is my second one. I got. I got. A, I got one just after the Dwyer trial in 2015. So it was done on that and this one. Yeah, no, I, I just, I'm always curious on, because Luke O'Neill, uh, Professor Luke O'Neill, when he was writing his first book, he's a pen and paper man. And he was oh. saying that the pen and paper was a pain. And so what I told him to do was just to word vomit. So turn on the transcribe function and he just walks around and he dictates all the stuff. And then he has to go in and correct it all and all the rest. But I'm always intrigued in what writers use to write in terms of the hardware and the software. Yeah, and what, what, what I mean... First, can I ask, did you like it? You were going to tell me yes. Yes, yeah, no, it's, it's such a good read. And I said it to my sister yeah, as well, okay. so yeah. Ah, very good. Well, look, the one thing I would say is, you know, everybody has a book in their in their head and it's extremely hard to get it on paper. It's really just hard to, you, you visualise something. And, you know, I consider myself a very good news writer, completely different writing, but look, I'm proud of it. But what I would advise anybody, get it down, write the book and the mistake I made was I the first iteration I wrote it and then I sent it off what you got to do is you got to write it put it in a drawer for six months come back read it then cry and then read it again. <laughs> that is... but I'm on book two already so oh good man okay fantastic uh well that okay that makes me happy um yeah look as I said I could talk to you for hours and days and weeks because I just find what you do fascinating if you haven't listened to the podcast you absolutely should uh Michael O'Toole thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk thanks Jess yeah if you're not already subscribed to Shattered Lives I would highly recommend it because it gives amazing insight into various aspects of crime and criminality in this country and I personally find it fascinating uh, I also mentioned our book club there which is going to happen by the way it's taken me a bit of time but it's going to happen uh, we will have all the details for you on next week's show if you want to get involved though you can still throw your name in the hat uh, just email techtalk at newstalk.com put book club in the subject bar and we will be on to you but now how would you like to win a 55-inch N19 TV from Telefunken? I have reviewed this TV. You can head over to watch it on YouTube if you want. Just search for News Talk. But why not get one of your own? Uh, it is a frameless 4K UHD LED display that runs WebOS Smart TV and has an excellent soundbar built in. To be in with a chance to win, simply tell me what show is this theme tune from? Text the word TV plus your name and answer to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent and I'll announce the winner on next week's show. Uh, for more information about the Telefunken TV lineup, you can head over to telefunkenelectronics.ie. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we'll take a closer look at the new Mini Cooper EVs. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly.
Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. Uh, and I, I have a treat for myself now, which is very self-indulgent, but bear with me. Uh, Derek Riley of Nevo.ie is here to talk about my favourite car, even though I don't drive still. Uh, uh, Derek, we're going to talk about the Mini Cooper. The new Mini Cooper, correct. I didn't realise it was your favourite car, Jess. I would have prepared much more if I'd known that. And uh, the fact that you're not even a driver, but you just love the car itself. It's a, You're a brand ambassador, is it? That's exactly it. I mean, if I could drive, I'd be dangerous. But uh, no, I've always wanted a Mini Cooper. And there's a friend of mine who used to work here in News Talk called Neil Kavna. And he's like a Mini Obsessive. And uh, so we've kind of bonded over Mini over the years. And I remember one of the years I was at Goodwood, I got to see their very first step into the world of electric vehicles uh, with the bright yellow little symbol on the back to indicate the electric vehicle. Uh, But you were swanning around the world looking at the new version. Swan, working, Jess, working. So at the moment, currently in Munich, we have the IAA Mobility Show. It used to be the Frankfurt Motor Show, but has now been moved to Munich and it's a mobility show now. So it's not just cars, there's two wheels, there's quadcopters, etc, etc. So that started on Monday of this week with a press day and then it's open to the public from Tuesday onwards. But before that, all of the German brands like to put on a bit of a show beforehand as you were already going to be in the country. And on Friday before IAA, we went to Mini and Mini now is part of the BMW group. So as much as we think Oxford, etc. from the United Kingdom and those Union Jack taillights, it is part. It is a German company now. And we got to see two of the new electric models coming down the line. And one of them is the Mini Cooper. And does it still have that classic Mini look? Absolutely, yes. The fifth generation Mini, the designer has very much kept that Mini design language. So if I said, showed you a silhouette or a shadow of it, you would know and Jess would know and even a non-Mini fan would know, oh yeah, that's a Mini. Uh, I understand what that is. The dimensions, the size, it's the fifth generation. Mini's been on the road now for since the 1960s. So uh, your grandparents probably would know that this is a Mini, even though now it is also electric. Uh, I have pictures here in front of me of the inside of the car and I've always loved the inside of the Mini Cooper as well. I just think it's so quirky and cute and hashtag adorbs. But I'm not wild about the material. I know this is like a real like pointless point, but I'm going to make it anyway. Not mad about the material on the dashboard. Recyclable, Jess. It's all about recyclable, the use of recyclable recycled material but also the circular economy and the circularity of the actual vehicle so they've really started diving into this as to we want to use stuff that has come from another source and then can also be recycled at the end of its life so this is a kind of a woven fabric and there are advantages to it with regards to cooling heating and behind that center screen and we'll talk about that in a second it actually projects light out onto the dash and because it's a textured surface it actually performs much better for the projections that comes off that center display but it looks geek though <laughs> you don't like the hound's tooth no now jess it's a picture and when this lands in ireland i'll pop around and we'll go for a little spin in the new mini cooper electric Okay, okay. I'll reserve my deep judgment. Um the the monitor, the display, the 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 big display in the dashboard is circular. It looks great. I really like the look of that. Samsung first time OLED first time and it is a 24 centimeter nearly circular. There's a small bit of a flat on the bottom. It's a bit like those smart watches from a couple of years ago. But yeah, beautifully clear. The colors are so vibrant. They have a couple of different what they call experiences. Uh, and just okay. loves all this marketing lingo and mm. jargon. And really, it's like modes or personas. And you've got everything from green mode, which is going to conserve energy and show you how good you're driving, all the way over to go-kart mode, which turns everything red and black and makes a noise. And then you've got the likes of timeless mode, which turns everything kind of a like a old mini of old. Uh, and the designer of the mini now has looked at the original mini, which was steering wheel, big center console, pretty similar to what you're looking at there in a digital format, and some toggle switches in underneath. There is no driver cluster behind the steering wheel. It's very much going back to the original Mini, which was very simplistic and kept everything in its place, whereas now, 60, 70 years later, this is what we're getting back in a digital form. Yeah, so I hate all the experiences, just FYI going forward. Um, but I do like that the dash, like the, the, the dashboard as a whole is actually very... 
like decluttered. There's no junk there. It's very small, fine and functional, but it still looks quite nice. Yeah, no, and it does, and in person, as I said, once once we get it to Ireland, I'll pop around so you can see it. And you know what? The modes are very much, if you do buy a Mini and it is known as a little go-kart on wheels, you go into go-kart mode and it actually sharpens up the steering, it changes the ambience, it changes the sound. So I know that it it's not Jess's kind of thing, but if you want to go fast, you go go-kart mode. If you want to go chilled out, you might go balance mode or core mode but yes it is uh, very much different things for different people and different styles oh okay um, <laughs> what about a virtual assistant now what about that Jess there is oh there's not enough virtual assistants in the world please tell me that there's a specific one just for Mini. And his name is Spike. He is a Great. little dog and he's intelligent. And you don't have to have Spike the dog joking aside. You can just have the mini assistant and you say the activation word. But what's intelligent about it is it starts to understand that it once Jess gets her driving license and she starts to drive and she is her route to her underground basement car park in her apartment complex. Every time she pulls up at the gate, she has to put down the window to put in the code in the keypad. It starts to learn that. And as you pull up to the car park, it will put down the window. So smart thinking and being smart and saving you as a driver time uh, and being intelligent uh, is what what many and other brands are looking to do as well. But and this is a serious issue that I've been thinking about quite a bit because in California, uh, they've introduced uh, driverless taxis across the board now. So pretty much every taxi company, if they want, can have driverless cars doing their bits. But the, some of the emergency responders have expressed serious concern about this because uh, uh, an e, a driverless car may not pick up the blue flashing lights and shimmy over to the side. So there's been times where emergency responders have to get out and physically move a car uh, to be able to get by in an emergency. And it's just had me thinking a little bit more about some of those automated, smart technological applications like it's grand when it works and when you want it to work but if it works in a way that doesn't suit or if it fails to activate at a uh, an important moment I'm still not sold on it all being within a car to be completely honest now this is very much driver aids rather than self-driving or automated yeah 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 uh, and so North America have a way of how they do it in North America is if you're a car manufacturer you put the car on the road and it is fine until something goes wrong and then they're trying to figure out what went wrong uh, a la mm. the automated driving and the different levels whereas the european union has very much proved to us that it can do what it says it can do every single time before we allow you to sell it on the road so there's five six different levels of automated driving uh, or autom- auto driving and at the moment bmw is around level two so it's like lane keep assist adaptive cruise control maybe lane change Whereas in America, it's a bit more autonomous driving, no driver in the seat, and it's doing all its own thing. And you can see, so that's why in Europe, you don't have self-driving cars because the European Union says, well, hold on a second, prove it first. Whereas in America, you've got beta testing going on on the open roads, which which we don't agree with. Yeah, OK, so I'll reserve some of my cynicism. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the e part of EV uh, when it comes to the Mini Cooper. Uh, What's special about this or what's different about this one? Just the the fact that it's fully electric and it's based on a ground up electric vehicle rather than the other way around, whereas it was a combustion engine vehicle and they tried to stick a bit of batteries into it. A lovely car, uh, the original one and the newer generation one that we got a facelift a couple of years ago, but it was very much not compromised, but just not a ground up EV, whereas this is a ground up EV that is has a bigger battery, has better range. So you're talking between 300 and 400 kilometers, depending on those two different sizes, two different electric motors. So much more of a, this is an actually electric vehicle with the mini branding and the mini badging on it. So I haven't driven it yet, just got a chance to walk around it and play with some of the interior stuff and the infotainment system. So I'm really looking forward to getting this on the road and seeing how good it is. Mini has always driven very well. And people were just saying, you know what, the old one had a probably around 185 kilometer range. So this is, you know, doubling that. So and Ireland is very small, so you probably don't need that much range anyway on a day to day basis. Okay, and do we have the Irish pricing for it yet? We do. So it starts off at 36,220, rising to 41,760. So not 
super affordable, but definitely for that stylish person that wants that mini aesthetics and doesn't have a huge amount of range needed. Um, yeah, I think they're going to sell it because you see them on the road. You'd see the mm-hmm. original ones on the road and they had not a great range. So it's uh, it's definitely going to be uh, a style icon. Style icon. Um, and speaking of something that's not a style icon, uh, the new Mini Countryman electric. This looks like a hearse. Jess, you're very harsh today on poor old Mini. Uh, it is a SUV, MPV, uh, very much for the family. Um, and they sell a lot of these because it is part of that Mini group and families want bigger cars. They've got more kids and kids have more stuff with them. So Mini Countryman never came in electric before. It's the third generation of it. But now it comes in an all electric variant as well, giving about 460 kilometers worth of range. Um, Very large. And so that's why it has that station wagon, longer body and what Jess likes to call a hearse. But I don't call it that. Um, When you see the roof line in the picture I sent through to you with the colored kind of a background, you can see it kind of has a kind of just behind the passenger windows has a kind of bit that sticks down they're calling this the surfboard design because it looks like a surfboard on the side of the actual car with the fin in underneath um same circular display internally but it's a much bigger car it's six centimeters taller and 13 centimeters longer so you're getting more space in the rear passengers and you're getting more space in the boot and families that's what they want and what about the range and the battery capacity on this one so range is about 462 and it comes in two different battery options. It has a all-wheel drive and a regular wheel drive. So depending on what you're looking for, if you plan on going off-road, uh, you can do that. And if you're planning on just being put around the town in an urban environment, you may not need the, uh, the all-wheel drive. So you can uh, get the, the standard version of it as well. And do we have pricing for this one? We do. We have the regular standard Countryman Electric E, 48,500. And then the all four, which is the four wheel drive version, is 54,500 approximately. Uh, That's all including government grants as well. And how does that compare to other family type EVs? For premium SUV, a lot of people would compare this against the BMW, its cousin within the same family, iX1, which would be their entry level. um, And it's probably about €10,000 cheaper. So if you're looking for that German, like the fit, the finish, the quality, uh, you can see, again, it's got a very much a woven dash. I'm not sure if Jess is going to be a fan of it. But as you come around from the dash to the door, it starts to blend in the colours. Something totally different. Has some brushed gold. Um, So on the premium side of things, it's fairly decent value. But then people are always going to say Derek what's it versus the Tesla Model Y which is the benchmark for and a Tesla Model Y long range is probably coming in at sub 50 so it's going to be going toe to toe with that some people don't like the minimalist interior of the Tesla Model Y whereas this would have that mini design mini heritage uh, and just that overall aesthetic look Mm. Um, and you mentioned there that mini is now part of the BMW group and we're going to talk about uh BMW design concept in a second and I'm trying to not be cranky right like I'm desperately trying to not like give this one a nice report there Jess just to say it looks nice just to say it looks nice no I can't lie to you though (laughs) it looks like if I said to my seven-year-old nephew sit down there and draw an idea of a spaceship and a car together he would get something that looks nicer. The front of it is ugly. The steering wheel is a weird shape. The wing mirror annoys me. I, I just explain what, why and get like, I just need to, no, just no. So this no. is what they call a design concept. So this is where BMW envisaged itself in a couple of years time. So this isn't going to be an actual car. You're going to start to see elements of this sprinkled across. So you'll start to get used to it. You'll start to be more friendly to it. I just maybe got you on the wrong day, Jess. I don't know. <laughs> but it is very much the next generation of vehicles with the BMW brand. Some people, and again, it's very Marmite. It's not an SUV, which we're happy with. It's a traditional two and a half box body saloon sedan. So it is what we would have seen in the past years ago. I actually like it but I know some people don't like it some people don't like the interior because it is corduroy seats and it reminds them of their geography teacher but tech wise I think it's starting to really showcase what BMW are starting to do with some of the uh, bits inside in it. Okay like what? So you've got a 
what they've done is they've dropped what's called the shoulder line. So the shoulder line in any vehicle would be at the bottom of the window that goes from the front of the car to the back of the car. So they've dropped that down a couple of centimetres so you have more visibility and more in air into the or more light coming into the car. So it's a much nicer air place to be and drive in. But you can see on the pictures I've sent through to you, there's a black line within the glass. And what yeah. that is, Jess, is e-ink. And that allows you to open and close the car and it will uh, put up different signals as to what's happening, whether it's locked, whether it's unlocked. So you press that e-ink and that's how the car actually opens. But if you look at the front of the windscreen at the bottom, just above the steering wheel, because they've dropped that down, now they can have an augmented reality head up display, not just in front of the driver, but that goes from side to side all the way across the width of the car. And that will display the likes of speed, information, what's on the radio, satellite navigation, all of these things that we all want in front of us. And what they're saying is it actually improves driver focus because he or she or they are not looking down away from where they're actually driving to. So it's all within your eye line and within your catchment of your eyesight. Okay. Um yeah, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put these pictures up on my Instagram, right? At Jess Kelly NT. Go over and have a look. And let me know if we should rename this from the EV segment to the ugly car segment. Uh, like, so do you not like the slanty screen inside? No, I was just going to say the lack of symmetry in inside the car is giving me vertigo. This like, might be your just OCD is not it's not helping. The steering wheel, those practicalities of the steering wheel, because normally those spokes, so it's a two spoke steering wheel and normally they're horizontal, but they're actually vertical. And the reason being is because the thumb screens on either side, you interact with that depending on what you're doing, whether it's increasing the volume on the media. I don't know, Jess, I'm going to have to get you into these cars because I'm not sure if these pictures are doing doing me justice here. The, and we're obviously on the radio, so nobody's going to see them until you put them up on Instagram. Okay, I'm going to do it right now. I'm literally going to go to Instagram, head on over at Jess Kelly NT and either comment ugly or lovely. And if you put lovely, if you put lovely, it will be noted. Just saying. <laughs> Keeping uh, track of all the people that like this car, but yeah, listen. As I said, some, even when I posted it on social media, people were like, "Oh my god, I love it," or "Oh my god, I don't like it." But you know what? It's great that we're having the conversation, and they're not just all the same, same. And we definitely don't want that. We do want no. to spark conversation. We want to annoy Jess every weekend, whatever yeah. it may be, you know. And we're doing a good. I'm doing a good job. Uh, you listen. You've absolutely killed it today. Uh, absolutely killed it. No, I'm only playing with you. Like, look, I do think it's interesting to see innovation in design and all the rest. But I sometimes feel like I remember being at uh, CES in Vegas a few years ago and walking through the car hall, and there were different design concepts and different proof of concepts and all the rest. And like, it's interesting, but I can't envisage anyone ever actually opting to buy one. Do you know what I mean? There's very, and you know what, they, they go they go crazy, the designers go crazy and the, and the people that think about this kind of stuff and then they get uh, feedback from the likes of Jess Kelly and others and consumers and they do focus groups, etc. Like we all know, and it gets very much tamed down as before it gets. But BMW, to be fair to them, the likes of their iX, which is their large SUV, it is totally something totally different and some people love it and some people don't love it and I respect them for that as well because it's you have to t- make a change otherwise everything's going to as they turn into the same, same. We definitely don't want that within any walk of life, uh, whether it's smartphones, whether it's e- uh, electric vehicles, uh, whatever it may be. Okay, maybe I'm just really cranky. I might run out and get a Kinder Bueno during the break. Uh, Derek Riley of Nevo.ie. Thanks so much. Thanks, William Jess. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, coming up in just a few minutes' time, John Fardy will be here with Screen Time. John, what's on the show this week? Thank you, Jessica. Well, for my money, the best movie of the year so far is a gorgeous film that's now in cinemas that opened this weekend called Past Lives, all about two young Korean students in in, in primary school who get separated when one of them moves to Canada at the age of 12 and it follows their lives over the next 20 years or so and them keeping in touch or not, as is the case. Sounds a bit strange. It's absolutely beautiful. And as I say, I think it might be the best movie of the year so far. And I'm talking to its director, Celine Song, on the show this week. We'll also be reviewing the other week's new cinema releases. And Paddy Cullivan chats about his favourite film.
Great stuff. All of that and more coming up just after six. Or you can listen to the podcast on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Uh, before we kick on, I want to give you another chance to win a 55 inch N19 TV from Telefunken. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I have reviewed it. You can watch that review if you so wish over on YouTube. Just search for News Talk. But why not get your hands on one of your own? It's a frameless 4K UHD LED display that runs WebOS, smart TV platform, and has an excellent excellent soundbar built in. To be in with a chance to win, just tell me what show is this the theme tune for? Uh, text the word TV plus your name and answer to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. I'll announce the winner on next week's show. For more information, you can visit telefunkenelectronics.ie. Now, on Tuesday of this week, CyberSafe Kids published its annual trends and usage report. This survey heard from more than 5,008 to 16 year olds. Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids spoke to News Talk Breakfast about some of the survey's key findings. So we bring out uh, data every year at the end of the school year, which is based on information that we've gathered gathered over the school year. This year, it's based on over 5,000 responses. I guess what was surprising for me this year was that we've included secondary school data, which is something we hadn't done before, because we've only started to deliver in uh, secondary schools over the last school year. And the levels of cyberbullying in secondary school were very high, significantly higher than primary school at 40%. I mean, the types of behavior we're seeing are, you know, children being left out of chat groups, mean messaging, messages being shared, fake account set up in people's names, you know, that sort of behavior. You know, these are really concerning uh, incidents for children and they can escalate, they can go on, which is also really challenging. And we're concerned that not every child is telling someone, particularly a trusted adult, when these things happen. Uh, We see that, uh, you know, nearly a third of children are not telling anyone. So that is very concerning and we need to encourage uh, children to talk to a trusted adult and to and for parents and educators to really encourage kids to speak out and be upstanders as well. What I want to see is more being done by government and social media companies to address the problems that are, that we've highlighted in this report. You know, it's it's one thing to support that move by schools and parents, and that's excellent, but we do need to do more. We need to put resources and uh, invest in really addressing this area because every child needs education on this. Uh, once they're active online, they need to be getting the education, getting the support. So we need to do a lot more. Yeah, that was Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids. And I've been, um, I suppose, teasing the key findings of this report out in my little brain over the last few days because cyberbullying is not a new issue. It's been around for, you know, I left school in 2007 and it was going on back then. It was going on in 2006 and in 2005. We used to use MSN chat messenger thing. There was the whole controversy of who's in your top 16 and Bebo and if you took someone out, that was, you know, effectively cyberbullying back in the day. None of this is new. There are more platforms and there are younger people engaging with the technology. But there are also a ton of examples of how and why these things can't be allowed to continue. And yet, here we are in 2023. Similar issues, different platforms, younger people, same exact issue. I would love to hear what you think. Um, What should be done? Is this something for parents to tackle rather than the teachers? Or do we need to have a proper digital education infrastructure in place for young people and for parents as well? Uh, I know that a lot of the schools around the country are talking about introducing a smartphone ban um, or, you know, coming together to prevent kids in schools from having phones until everybody agrees on it and all the rest. And while that's brilliant to see that level of action and parents taking the initiative, I don't know of a single school that says, yeah, bring a phone in with you. You know, the phone ban thing has been, again, in place in schools since I was in school. So this issue continues to fall between a few stools. And I'm genuinely curious as to what could be done, should be done and how it will be done. Uh, so again, I, I'd love to get your thoughts. You can email me techtalk at newstalk.com. Uh, but that's it from me for this week. I'll be back on Newstalk Breakfast on Monday morning. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.